Hey, Door of Hope Northeast, Josh Wilder here, pastor of communities. Hey, uh, this is a bit of a different kind of um, sermon than you're used to because we actually had some technical difficulties uh, recording the sermon last Sunday. We only got about two-thirds of it. So I'm going to just kind of fake it because there's nobody here. Um, the first uh, the first third of it I'm going to redo, and then we're kind of going to try and sew that into what we do have recorded. So if my voice sounds a little different, if the energy's a little different, it's because this is a little different. We're trying to get the whole thing um, put together uh, after the, the mishap on Sunday. So... Here we go. <clears throat> I began the sermon like this. <laughs> uh, I began with an illustration about an oak tree. Now, I live, um, as many of you know, I live in the parsonage connected to the church, which is across the street from Irving Park, which is a wonderful park. And one day, when I was walking with my son and daughter, I have a two-year-old and a one-year-old, when I was walking with them through the park, we saw, we came, we came upon a whole bunch of like heavy equipment and what they were doing is one of them was the, was the machine that has like the tank tracks underneath it and it swivels around. It has the big claw arm thing. And that big claw arm was picking up like the massive trunk of a huge oak tree, you know, and, and it was setting it down in the back of a, of a dump truck, you know, and it goes all the, the weight, you know, on the shocks, it bounces and all that. And uh, my kids were just fascinated. It was wonderful. I probably got a good 20 minutes out of there where I didn't have to keep them from dying on the slide or the swing or, you know, keep them from getting stung by a bee or whatever. And we could just sit there and watch. And I was fascinated too. But the funny thing, the reason why I'm bringing up this, this story is, is because we had passed under that oak tree probably over 100 times. We'd go over there almost every single day, sometimes two times a day or three times a day. We'd pass by that massive oak tree and none of us would have thought anything was wrong. It was green, flourishing, dropped acorns, it had leaves. But that tree was actually a hazard. We went over after they were done. We looked at the stump and inside it was hollowed out. It had rotted. It was rotting from the inside out. And nobody knew. Except for somebody knew. That's why they took it down. Because that tree was going to kill somebody eventually. If the wind blows hard enough, it's going to fall over and someone's going to get hurt. Now this is the, the, uh, a great uh, picture of what the Bible says about us apart from God. We look alive. We look like we're flourishing. But inside we have this emptiness, this hole, this rot this death that is at work inside of us. But God in his grace and his mercy and his love is not content to leave us like that. So he comes as the son of God, Jesus Christ, and he lives the life that we were not even capable of living. And he dies the death that we deserved on our behalf to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. But the truth is, if Jesus went and did all that, but we did not have the Holy Spirit to come and apply all that work into our hearts and our lives, it wouldn't do anything for us. Which is, once again, why we're doing this sermon series on the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit comes, it's like if, if you're that oak tree, the Holy Spirit is like a seed that comes in and is planted right in the middle of that death, in the, right in the middle of that, that void, that rot, 
And that seed takes root deep down inside of the root system of the tree and begins to grow. Actually begins to change the tree, to transform it, to change its DNA. Did you know that a, that a Christian is a supernatural thing? You're no longer the same. Once the Holy Spirit is alive inside of you, you're no longer just you. You're a new kind of being. You're a, a, a mixed unity of God and man. Your life is no longer yours. Your ontology is the, is the fancy word for it. You might have heard that term in philosophy class or something like that. The ontology of a thing is the study of being. It's what a thing is. You're no longer just a mere human. You're a human that is so attached and bound to God through the work of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit You're actually a new kind of creation. And as that seed takes root, it starts to grow inside of you. It starts to fill that void out. And in fact, eventually it starts to create pressure so that the old you starts to crack and break and the new you can really come out. So the planting of that seed is what's called regeneration or the new birth. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. And the filling of the Spirit is often a filling out in which uh, sometimes miraculous things happen. New abilities, things that aren't just you start to come out. And finally, that it begins, the new life begins to mature us so that we bear fruit. What Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit here in verse 22. And that's what we're going to uh, talk about today in this sermon. But there's a thousand ways in which someone could go about talking about the fruit of the Spirit, right? There's probably tens of thousands of sermons that have been given on this very passage over the last 2,000 years. And probably a lot of them are all different, taking different angles. So I'm going to give you the particular one that I'm doing today. And that is, we're going to talk about the nature of the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to talk about why we often don't see it in our own lives. And then finally, what we can do about it. We're going to start here with the, with the nature of the fruit. What do we mean by the fruit of the Spirit? Well, Paul says in, in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, you might look at each of these things and say, Well, that's interesting. Uh, I think I know what love and joy and peace and faith, I think I know what these things are, and I think I have experienced them in fits and starts and very, at various times in my life. But if you think about it more deeply, if what we're talking about is sort of like moods or, or abilities, like the ability to have self-control or, or to be patient, if we're talking about these varying degrees that come and go and sort of fluctuate, What's the difference between that and somebody who doesn't have Jesus at all? Somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit? Is there a difference? Are we talking about the same thing? I would argue that they're actually different. Anyone can have, in fits and starts, various aspects of what what is being talked about here. Because there's common grace. God has given His grace to everyone. So that they, in some measure, are going to experience that grace through things like love and joy and peace and patience and all that. But what makes the fruit of the Spirit unique, one, is that it's not circumstantially dependent. 
Okay, have you noticed that very often your, your ability to bear this sort of fruit in these, uh, in these fragmentary sort of ways is very circumstantially dependent. It's very easy to love when people around you are all lovable. It's very easy to have joy when everything's going your way and have peace when no one else is creating the tension. It's something supernatural altogether to have all this when things aren't going your way. Think about Paul in the, in the book of Philippians. He's in prison. He says, I'm in prison. He says people are slandering his name. People are preaching the gospel for their own ends. They're preaching the gospel in their own way to try and afflict Paul. And he says, I'm probably on death row. I'm probably going to die. And nevertheless, this is the letter that is filled with joy and rejoicing. He says it over and over and over again. He's rejoicing. It's almost like Paul acknowledges, yes, this is happening. But his mind is so occupied with the kingdom and what Jesus is doing, that the gospel is made all the way into Caesar's household, and it's going and spreading throughout all the world. It's like it doesn't even matter what's happened to Paul. It's something that surpasses his circumstances. So this is different from that uh, here, here again, gone again, sort of moods, this is something that is sustained over time, independent of circumstances. And another reason why this is different is because, did you notice that Paul says, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is, singular, all these things. All of them together are a singular thing, because that's how character works. Somebody, I have a certain kind of character, and it's made up of all different aspects, but it's really one thing. When I married my wife, she, she gets the whole me. She gets the whole package. And what Paul is meaning to say here is that the fruit of the Spirit isn't just a little bit of this, a little bit of that, this sometimes, that sometimes, maybe a little bit of this. It's a whole package. It all comes together. Kind of like, you know, there are some fruits like raspberry. They're, what is it? Tart or sweet? It's both. There are ways in which we, we are. The fruit contains all of these all at once. They're all tied together. It's a complete package. It's not sporadic bits. It's an overall disposition that a person has. It's a description of the whole person. And what you might be thinking right now is, uh, I don't know if I've ever met, a, if this is describing a Christian, I don't know if I've ever met one. And I don't know if I am one because I have not experienced this, not in any sort of sustained way. That's an important question to ask. But before we get there, I want to just uh, hopefully give you some hope. And that is what we're talking about. Hopefully you're noticing it, is that this is something that is supernatural. It's something that's supernatural. And the important thing about things that are supernatural to remember is that to have a supernatural outcome, you need a supernatural source. You cannot create something supernatural out of purely natural means. It will not work that way. Which brings me to the second thing to say about the nature of the fruit, and that is how it is produced. It is produced supernaturally. It is produced through our union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. That is that our lives are commingled with the life of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Now, Hang in there. I know this is a bit mystical, but it's biblical, okay? So if you turn back a couple of pages to Galatians 2.20, Paul says this. Paul says, 
I have been, past tense, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you catch that? Past tense. Paul's alive, right? But he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ. See how Paul understands, can't understand himself in independence from Jesus. He understands himself to be so connected with Jesus that Jesus' own history, his own life, is now Paul's. Paul's life and Jesus' life are so intertwined that he talks about them as though they are the same thing. He talks about the same thing actually in in Romans, I believe it's in chapter 6, when he says that we were buried uh, through baptism in a death like his and we will be raised into a life like his. But this isn't the only place. Turn over, turn over to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians, uh, let me get there. <laughs> Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, past tense again, if you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, past tense again, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See what he's saying? You, you had Christ in you, and now you are in Christ. This co-mingling, this, this fellowship, this union of your being with the being of Jesus Christ. You guys are looking at me like you don't believe it. I, I, I get it. It's hard to grasp. So we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going until we, until we get it. Of course, you're not going to get it by the end of here, and I, don't, I still don't have it, even though I've been studying it all week. Second Peter. If you have a Bible, you can just keep on flipping around with me. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 2, Peter says this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become, pay attention here, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Partakers of the divine nature, shared life. Are you getting it? Like you, you're, you go around all day thinking that you're just you. But you're not just you. You're a, you're a holy you. There's a Jesus you now. You're not what you think you are. You are something supernatural. And I'm not saying that in the, in the woo-woo-woo, let's start a cult way. Like, this is biblical. This is in the Bible. Okay, one more. One more and we're done. Back in John, John chapter 17. If you're familiar with your Bible, John 17, the entire chapter is a prayer. It's Jesus last night with his disciples. And Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he says this in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the 11 with him. Right? Not just asking for the 11 apostles who are still there but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who, who is that? Basically every Christian who ever existed after that. We all believe because of the apostles' word, right? Um, so Jesus is praying for you and I. And what does he pray in verse 21? He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 22, he goes on, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Man, it's really hard for me not to just preach this verse right now. But I'll say just briefly, do you realize what he's just saying? He's saying the love that the Father has for the Son, for Jesus, for the perfect one, that's the same love that he has for you. It's not like God has one love for his perfect son and then a different love for the rest of us sinners. It's the same love. And do you know why that is? Because when he looks at you, he sees his son's face. Because you're not just you. Your life has been hidden with Christ in God. And when he appears, your life will also appear. You're united to Christ. And that is how the fruit of the Spirit will be produced. What I mean in saying this is that we never are fully in possession of the fruits. You don't produce your own fruit. It's always derivative of the life of God that's inside of you. Okay? So, now, this has all been kind of like theoretical up to this point. Maybe a little woo-woo-y, maybe your head's spinning. But one thing I can imagine, if you're a Christian, that you're thinking right now is... Uh, if all what you're saying is true, then why am, I not, why am I not seeing this whole fruit of the Spirit thing like really, really happening in my life? I would think that it, I should, we should be walking around and being like, whoa, you're supernatural. Look at what you're doing. Look at your life. It, like, you can't explain this other than God being there. Why doesn't that happen? Well, one reason could be you actually don't have the Holy Spirit. You could think you're a Christian and you're not. Like, that's possible. Or you can know you're not a Christian. You just don't have the Holy Spirit. That's definitely a possibility. So ask yourself, do you love Jesus? Do you love God? Do you love the things of God? Do you want the Holy Spirit? If you have this appetite and this desire, it's likely the Spirit's already at work in you. But it's possible if you're like, yeah, I just show up and I kind of just don't really care. Well, maybe, maybe you really need the Holy Spirit. Maybe you need this new birth thing to happen to you. And I would love to talk to you afterwards if you're wondering that. And we can talk about it. A bigger reason, though, more likely, if you're already a believer, that we don't see this is because we are at war. We're at war in our life. We often forget that. I know that, that Christians sometimes we have, we, we sort of overuse the war metaphor. Um, but it's biblical. <laughs> it's biblical. We're, we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is a devil. There is a Satan who is real, and he hates you, and he hates your life, and he hates God. And one of the reasons why he hates you so much is because when he sees you, he sees someone made in the image of God. And when he sees you, believer, he knows that this is true, that God is inside of you. And since he hates God, he hates you. And he'll stop at nothing to stop you. He doesn't want you to bear this fruit. And so he's going to work on you telling you lies, like you're on your own. You gotta, do, you gotta make this. God's really expecting you to bear this fruit, so you better knuckle up and do it. He's going to work at you with lies. The other thing I mentioned, the war, going along with the war, war metaphor, the world, the flesh, and the devil, is the world, and by that I don't mean like that evil, sinful world out there, all those liberals, all those Democrats, all those libertarians, all those <laughs> Green Party or whatever, uh, like 
not just the world out there outside of our like isolated um, network of believers or whatever, but I just mean this age, this age, right, that we live in, we are constantly tempted to invest our life in the things of this age, right? Uh, buying new things, having greater comforts, um, ascending, not necessarily the corporate ladder, but just like having greater and greater degrees of comfort and safety and whatever, where we're really just investing in what will make us happy in this age. That's how the world goes to work on us. And that happens through marketing. That happens through like the social groups that you tend to tie yourself to. It can happen through food. Anything that's going to distract you from thinking that what's really going on is God and his kingdom. That's the most important thing that's happening. And the world is trying to get our eyes to look at this age and say, that's what's really happening. So the world is going to work at us too. Finally, the flesh, the world of flesh and the devil, I'm taking them in this order because uh, this whole idea of the flesh is right here in Galatians. So I'm going to go back to it because I've been going all over in my Bible. If I can find it. There it is. Nope, there it isn't. (laughs) There's Ephesians. We'll get there. So in Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see that? We're at war with the flesh. And by the way, when he says flesh, we might be tempted to think, yes, um, that means all the things that come with being an embodied creature, like I get tired, so then I get cranky. I get hungry, so then I get cranky. Uh, there's these little like physical discomforts that make me this way. Paul doesn't just mean, mean your, your body embodied existence. Flesh, he actually says earlier on in Galatians in chapter 3, he says, are you now trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit? By that, he doesn't mean, are you trying to, d- to do something in your body that's going to perfect? But what he actually means is the law. Are you trying to perfect who you are by following Torah? Following Torah, he mentions as a kind of flesh. That is, doing things in yourself apart from God. That also is flesh. It's actually turning away from God. Because anytime you imagine yourself to be independent from God, you're actually becoming in rebellion against him. That's what was going on in the garden. God gave Adam and Eve the choice. You could go your own way without me, or you could go my way with me. That's essentially what it is. So we are at war with the flesh, these impulses, these, um, uh, not just the impulses, not just our desires, but even our good desires to do something apart from God. God, I'm going to do something for you. I'm gonna, you're going to be really impressed. You're going to be really happy when I do X, Y, Z. The last reason I'm going to say why we don't see this fruit is because it just takes time sometimes, you guys. It just takes time. There, there is no living organism that as soon as it is born, it is reproducing. It is mature. It takes time. And also, it takes other people. I was just uh, a few days ago, no, it was probably like a week ago, I was watching this kind of documentary uh, film, and there was this monk in a monastery. <laughs> Imagine that, a monk in a monastery. Um, so there's this monk in the monastery, and he was saying one of the great things about being in, a, uh, being in the same place with the same people 
for a long period of time is you get to see God's grace at work in their life. And he has this example of it where he says, 20 years ago I thought so-and-so, nobody should come within two blocks of that guy. And then 10 years ago I was like, you could get within a block. <laughs> He's like, now you can get within six feet. Still, you still don't want to get that close to him, but, like, but he's growing. He's progressing. It takes time. Maturity takes time. So it may take some time to see the fruit of the Spirit. Now, all this um, has been highly theoretical, right? And I've been talking about, like, big woo-woo ideas, and if you've just had the worst week of your life, you might be going, great. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, what do I do about it? What can I do about it? And that's the true question here, right? I suppose if you've sort of been in Christian circles for a while, what you're going to expect me to say next is one of two things. It's a war, so go to war. Knuckle down and fight. Or it's a horticultural metaphor. Cultivate. You've got to cultivate, cultivate, cultivate. Water, fertilizer, light, pull out the weeds. It's actually not what I'm going to say. Re- remember what I said. Like, write this. If you're taking notes, you should write this down. A, a supernatural outcome requires a supernatural source and a supernatural means. No matter how much you cultivate or go to war, you only, ex- you only succeed because of the supernatural source, not the natural one. This is one of the things where, um, I, that I really appreciate about John Calvin in the first book of Institutes. He doesn't use this language. I'm just saying this is where I got it. But he says one of the big problems that we have as human beings, one of the ways that we are major idolaters, is that we actually don't trace good things all the way back to their source. We stop somewhere. So we say, oh, look, so-and-so is uh, so wise, so knowledgeable. They know so much. And so we give them all kinds of glory and credit for how wonderfully smart or wise that they are. Or we give the institutions or their teachers all that credit. But we don't go, well, where did those institutions be created? Who created that person? Who created their DNA? Who created their mind? Who created those that invested in them? It all is eventually going to go back to God. God is the source of everything good. Or you can take somebody who's an athlete. You watch the Olympics, right? And you're just like blown away at what people can actually do. And we give them all the credit. Or we give their coaches the credit or the, or the program the credit. But in truth, it's all God. God was the one who supplied them with everything that they needed to be able to accomplish what they're accomplishing. We need to understand that the fruit of the Spirit has a supernatural source. This is a a quote I got from from a commentary. He said this, the fruit of the Spirit. Well, that's in brackets. He didn't say the fruit of the Spirit, but that's what he's describing. I think he said this or something like that, but I have to, you have to say the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not merely or even principally the result of the individual's knowledge of the good or cultivation of the good through habituated practice. It is the result of a power external to and beyond the individual at work within them. Okay, so I think this is the last time I need to say this. Uh, First thing we can do about it is recognize the source. The source is not you in yourself. The source is supernatural. 
It's the Holy Spirit at work inside of you. What this means is that that this is not and cannot be your achievement. And it also means that the fruit of the Spirit is not a list of expectations that God has for you in order to satisfy Him. I'm going to say that again. The fruit of the Spirit is not a list of expectations that God has for you in order to satisfy Him. The fruit of the Spirit is a gift that He has for you because He's generous and wants to give it to you because He's united His life to yours. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. Because God is rich. You know, in the New Testament, there are several times when God is described as rich. And you know what it says God is rich in? It says God is rich in glory. He's rich in grace. He's rich in kindness. It never says that God is rich in condemnation, (laughs) judgment, severity. Of course, God is going to judge. God does get angry. It says in the Psalms, God gets angry every day. But it doesn't say he's rich in those things. He's rich in this graciousness, in this overflowing love and desire to give himself. And so he wants to give you the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I've said over and over again, probably to where your eyes are glazing over, like you can't do this on your own, right? But there's a lot of things you can do to keep from getting this. There's a lot of things you can do to refuse the gift of of the fruit of the Spirit. And so one of the things we need to do, here's here's number two in terms of what we can do, is follow what Paul says here in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Now walking is a Jewish idiom, super common. It just means for live your life. Live your life. Go, do. Walk by the Spirit. Now the, the question then is like, what does that mean? It sounds really pious, and we can all tell each other, hey, walk by the Spirit, brother or sister. Walk by the Spirit. And this often happens in Christian circles. We'll, we'll pass around a phrase that nobody can actually define. You pass that around and say, what do you mean by walk by the Spirit? Oh, I mean, um, listen to the Lord. Okay, what does it mean to, to listen to the Lord? Well, you, you, you walk by the Spirit, you know? And you, you pass these phrases around, and you use a different phrase to define that phrase, and no one actually knows what's going on. So what I want to do is put a little bit of, put a little bit of meat on, on this a little bit. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? I'm going to say, go down to verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Here's part of what it means to walk by the Spirit. Be led. Be passive. Yield. Yield yourself in your life to the work of the Spirit. Sometimes our pious activity is exactly the thing that's getting in the way of the Spirit leading us. Have you thought about that? Sometimes your pious activity is actually you running out and doing something and not actually yielding to the Holy Spirit. There's a term uh, in German, this came along in the German mystical tradition called Gelassenheit. Gelassenheit. And it has to do with a sort of submission passivity, yielding to the Holy Spirit, and not just yielding in generally, but a readiness to suffer. That's being, that's truly yielding. That's truly saying, I will let you lead me. If you're going to say, I will let you lead me into a desert. I will let you lead me into something that will really cost me, that will really make me suffer. 
And in case you're wondering if God would actually do that, go back to Acts chapter 9 where God says to Ananias, hey, uh, there's this guy Paul. Uh, I just saved him. I know you think he's your enemy, but he's really on your team now. You need to go heal him of his blindness, and I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. I think about what Jesus said. Blessed are you when you are persecuted, knowing that they're going to be persecuted. He tells his disciples in John chapter 15, everyone's going to hate you. They're going to kick you out of the synagogue. They're going to kill you. He's actually leading them into that. Are we ready to yield ourselves to the work of the Spirit? Jesus talks about, not this exactly, but I'm just wanting to point out that their Christianity, one aspect of it is this right here. Go to Mark 8, 34. Jesus, uh, Mark says this, And he, Jesus, called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, anyone would come after he, me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. There is this principle within Christianity that the only way, the only way to go up is to go down. The only way to victory is defeat. The only way to success is failure. So you and I are like that oak tree and we feel the pressure of the Spirit growing inside of us, but we still have this external sense of who we are, who we think we are, and we're trying to hang on to that while God's trying to transform us. And so we constantly live in this tension, and what we really need to do is to let the Spirit keep growing and crack us open and let those branches break off. But we're unwilling to do that. We're unyielding because it's scary. Isn't it? We're scared to change. You know, grief has a way of doing this, of forcing you into this. When somebody dies or something horrible happens to you, you enter grief. Whether you choose to or not, you enter grief. You come to grief. And one of the most frightening things in there is you don't know who you're going to be on the other side. So very often we avoid it. We are a culture that avoids grief like the plague. So I'm just going to keep busy at my work. I'm just not going to talk about it. I'm going to binge Netflix. I'm going to do whatever. But you don't even have to come into grief for us to do that. For most of us, this is our entire life. This is like my entire life. I think I know who I am. I think I know who God wants me to be. And then I try and live in light of what I think about myself without actually thinking who I am is actually this new kind of being. It's united to Christ. And in order to find out who you truly are, you have to actually yield and embrace some difficult and painful changes that God has for you. Yieldedness. Reminds me of a long time ago, I read a book called Ben-Hur. Anybody read that? No, didn't think so. Anybody see the movie, Charlton Heston? Okay, a lot of people saw the movie. The movie missed this entirely. So if you remember from the movie, The Chariot Race, so the main character is Ben-Hur, and he has this nemesis, his, his used-to-be best friend, who's now like, they've turned enemies, named Masala. And they're in this chariot race together, and it's like a fight to the death kind of thing, where they're trying to get across the finish line. What happens in the book is, is Ben-Hur's friends are watching him. 
They're watching him go around and around, you know, and they're noticing that his, he's, he's really strained and his face is starting to get pale and he's starting to look weaker and weaker. It's okay, Lucy. You can run after it. <laughs> so Ben-Hur's face is getting paler and paler as he's getting weaker and weaker, going around the track over and over again, and they're thinking, they're thinking, he's not going to make it. He's going to lose. And then what happens on the last, the last stretch is Ben-Hur actually lets go of the reins. And they come to realize what he has been doing the whole time is holding back the horses. And what he had to do is just let them go. And the way the author describes it is the, the reins come out and they're whipping around in the wind like, like, uh, like a bunch of ribbons tossed and Ben-Hur is just standing there calling to his horses saying, go, go. That's what I want to do with the Spirit. I want to be able to say, Lord, just take me, just go. I'm tired of holding back whatever it is you're trying to do so that I can keep hold of who I think I need to be, who I think I want to be, what other people expect me to be. And just let my life be what you want to make it. Yieldedness. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit, is to say, I'm going to trust you to be the leader. I'm going to trust you to take me into those vulnerable, difficult, painful places and break off the limbs that need to be broken off so that I can truly be what you have intended for me to be. Yield to the Spirit. And finally, in verse... uh, Oh, I'm in the wrong spot again. (laughs) I think this is verse... um, Verse 24, it says, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Part of what it means to, belong, to, to, to walk by the Spirit is to belong. Yield and belong. Belong to Jesus. No, understand in yourself that you belong to Jesus. If you are in Christ, you're not your own. You have been crucified. You were bought with a price. Your life is united to Christ. The deeper you can go into this, the more that you can truly take hold of this, the more you're going to see fruit in your life. You know why? Because identity precedes action. You live out of who you understand yourself to be. And as long as you think of yourself as an independently existing human being who might get a little, a little bit of spiritual charge every once in a while from the Holy Spirit, not an integrated being whose life is united to Christ's life, you're not going to get it. So belong. Believe that you truly belong to Jesus. Believe that the work that he has done is sufficient for you. You don't have to do anything to belong to him. Believe that his spirit is at work inside of you. The more you metabolize this into your being, the more you will be transformed. You know, what's interesting about food is when when you eat something, your body metabolizes it. It becomes transformed into the cells of your body, into who you are. But who you are is also transformed by what you eat. That's why when you eat certain things, you feel crummy, and when you eat other things, you feel great. This truth needs to be metabolized into all of our life. 
want to end with a prayer from Philippians. Paul says this in chapter 1. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.